On October the 22nd, 1950, the Directors Guild of America convened a meeting to vote on a highly contentious loyalty oath. The DGA was split with those in favour believing the oath an urgent necessity to root out communism, while those opposed saw it as proof that McCarthyism was nesting in Hollywood's hills. Many prominent directors spoke. C.B. DeMille, John Huston, George Stevens and finally a then three-time Oscar winner who proclaimed My name is John Ford, I make westerns. Now, of those three Oscar winners, The Informer, The Grapes of Wrath and How Green Was My Valley, none of them are westerns. Yet, by declaring himself a director of westerns, Ford was implying that as a director of that most American of genres, his credentials, his loyalty to America, couldn't be questioned. From The Iron Horse and Stagecoach, through to My Darling Clementine and Rio Grande, Ford's epic vision wrote America's past as legend, and so it became fact. But if you were to measure Ford's career from that fateful DGA meeting, he then undertook a new series of westerns, The Sun Shines Bright, The Searchers, The Horse Soldiers, Sergeant Rutledge, Two Rode Together, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and Cheyenne Autumn, that not only reviewed those legends, but confessed to the bigotry, savagery, avarice and psychosis that shaped them. The beginning of a day, September 7th, 1878. It dawned like any other day on the Cheyenne Reservation, in that vast barren land in the American Southwest, which was then called Indian Territory. But this wasn't just another day to the Cheyenne. Far from their homeland, as out of place in this desert as eagles in a cage, their three great chiefs prayed over the sacred bundle that at last the promises made to them when the white man sent them here more than a year ago would today be honored. The promises that had led them to give up their own way of life in their own green and fertile country, 1,500 miles to the north. So, while Ford directed westerns, he also redirected the genre, helping take it into new territories. The same thing might be said of Martin Scorsese in the gangster picture. Only, since the very start of his career, Scorsese has not really been making gangster pictures, but rather using the genre as a frame through which he has reviewed America's past. Just over half of all Scorsese's American-based feature films have enjoyed historical settings. And here is the director in his 1995 documentary, A Personal Journey Through American Movies, explaining the tensions faced by every Hollywood director. If you haven't got the story, you haven't got anything. Ralph Walsh used to say this. And this is another cardinal rule. The American filmmaker has always been more interested in creating fiction than revealing reality. I mean, early on, the documentary form was discarded or relegated to a marginal status. For better or for worse, the Hollywood director is an entertainer. He's in the business of telling stories. He's therefore saddled with conventions and stereotypes, formulas and cliches. And all these limitations were codified in specific genres. Elsewhere in the documentary, Scorsese speaks of the director as a smuggler, a filmmaker who, because of the demands of the studio system, had to hide his subtext within the conventions and stereotypes, formulas and cliches of specific genres that were expected only to entertain. So, while Hollywood has always made films about America's past, precious few of them have offered anything more than a nostalgic pacifier. There is nothing nostalgic nor pacifying about a Martin Scorsese picture. While his lead characters, Jake LaMotta, Henry Hill, Ace Rothstein, Amsterdam Vallon, and now Frank Sheeran, yearn for days long since gone, Scorsese doesn't. Rather, he uses the gangster genre to smuggle in an examination of American history. 
consider the way he opens The Irishman. In the Still of the Night was released by the Five Satins in 1956, and if you listen carefully, you can hear the backing singers repeat the refrain, I remember. Under that lyric, cinematographer Rodrigo Pietro begins an extended tracking shot that takes us gently along the corridor of a retirement home, through a series of foyers, around a corner and down some steps, before finally settling on an old man sitting alone in his wheelchair. Frank Sheeran, played by Robert De Niro, appears to be staring into empty space. But then in voiceover, we hear... When I was young, I, I thought house painters painted houses. <laughs> what did I know? I was a working guy. A business agent for Teamster Local 107. And then... Out of South Philly. We see him speak. One of a thousand working stiffs. Until I wasn't no more. And then... I started painting houses myself. Gorsese has used voiceover in many of his pictures, frequently experimenting with the form from a single narrator to several narrators to an unreliable narrator to an omniscient narrator. And in The Irishman, he again pushes the format. Hearing Frank's narration before we see him begin to speak implies that what he is saying he has been preparing for quite a while because it has been on his mind for quite a while. Which invites the question, now that the camera has arrived, who has come to listen to him? A priest? The FBI? Either one would imply a confession, which would also imply Frank is seeking, if not forgiveness, then at least a plea bargain. But for what and from whom? To figure out who Frank is speaking to, let's compare the other uses of narration in Scorsese's films. Mean Streets has Harvey Keitel's Charlie Kappa talking as an internal monologue as he tries to reconcile himself with his Catholic faith. In Taxi Driver, Robert De Niro's Travis Bickle doesn't so much speak to himself as much as we hear what he's writing in his diary. In The Last Temptation of Christ, we hear Willem Dafoe's Jesus resting with another voice in his head, which he has to figure out is either the devil or indeed God. In The Age of Innocence, narration is provided by Joanne Woodward, voicing that of the novel's author, Edith Wharton, whose omniscient perspective gives us a much-needed insight into the labyrinthine world of New York's elite society in the 1870s. Casino offers us two narrators, one from Joe Pesci's Nicky Santoro, who ends up being murdered. And in The Wolf of Wall Street, Scorsese lets us know from the very start that Leonardo DiCaprio's Jordan Belfort is simply not to be trusted but Goodfellas has the most complex use of narration. Until very late in the film, we think that Ray Liotta's Henry Hill is simply recounting his life of crime. But then, after he is arrested and turned state witness, we see him in the courtroom testifying against his fellow criminals. See him here in the courtroom today? Yes. Could you please point him out to the members of the jury? Your Honor, please let the record reflect that Mr. Hill has identified defendant James Conway. Mr. Hill, do you also know a man by the name of Paul Cicero? Yes. Do you see him here in the courtroom today? Yes. Can you point him out for the members of the jury? 
Your Honor, let the record reflect that Mr. Hill has identified the defendant, Paul Cicero. Suddenly, Henry turns and addresses the camera. Didn't matter. Didn't mean anything. When I was broke, I would go out and rob some more. Scorsese has placed the camera in the jury box, which means Henry is talking to us, his peers, which also means we are there to judge him. By contrast in The Irishman, Frank never looks at us. But Scorsese does have someone look at Frank. And that look is not just a judgment. It is a look that carries the heaviest moral force Scorsese has ever delivered in any of his films. And this from the man who directed The Last Temptation of Christ. Frank's daughter Peggy, played as a young girl by Lucy Galina, watches as her father savagely beats the owner of a grocery store. And then later, as a young woman, played by Anna Paquin, realises he is committing even worse crimes. At which point, she decides to have nothing to do with him. And that is why we never see the person to whom Frank is delivering his narration. It is an internal monologue, spoken aloud, as if he were calling out in hope that Peggy might come and visit him. In the hands of a director prone to sentiment and nostalgia, the Irishman would have ended with Peggy returning to forgive and reconcile with her father. But not here. Instead, it falls to her sister Dolores, played by Marin Ireland, to explain why Peggy will neither see nor speak to her father ever again. Daddy, you have no idea what it was like for us. I mean, we couldn't go to you with a problem because of what you what you would do. You know, we couldn't we couldn't come to you for protection because of the terrible things that you would do. I was just I was I, I don't want to see us get hurt. That's all. I don't wanna and. I know you read a lot of things about me, you heard about me. I'm sorry. That I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Which means the Irishman ends with Frank alone in his dark and silent room, the door barely ajar. For decades, the disappearance of Labour Union leader Jimmy Hoffa had been an unsolved mystery. That is, until 2004, when Charles Brandt published his book, I Heard You Paint Houses. But Peggy Sheeran had figured it out long before, and she never forgave her father for what he did. In the film, young Peggy saw Hoffa less as president of the Teamsters and more as a close friend of the family, a kind man who, played by Al Pacino, was completely different from her father's other criminal associates. That Frank could portray their friendship confirmed everything Peggy feared he was, an intimidating father and heartless killer. How could anyone ever be so unconscionable? Scorsese devotes a very lengthy sequence to Hoffa's murder, one scene in particular having the erstwhile friends talking in the back of a car. But as they chat, we see anxiety etching onto Frank's face, which recalls another movie that also has a scene in the back of a car where one man is about to betray the other. I mean, I'm telling you, I don't know, Charlie. That's what I want to talk to you about. Listen, Terry, you know how much those peers are worth that we control through the local? All right, you think that Johnny's going to jeopardize the whole setup for one rubber-lipped ex-tanker who's walking that. on his heels? What the... That's not the point. I could have been a lot better, The point is, we don't have much time. I'm telling you, I haven't made up my mind yet. Well, make up your mind before we get to 437 River Street. In publicizing the film, both Scorsese and his cast have stated that betrayal is the film's central theme. It is certainly a central theme in many gangster pictures. But go back to Scorsese's documentary, where he discusses Abraham Polanski's Force of Evil and Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather, and you get a sense of what the Irishman is really about. You couldn't buck the system. 
You were indebted to the syndicate for life. Where's my brother? Where's my brother? Where's my brother? Where's Fico? Where did Fico take my brother? They were forever using you. They even wanted you to sacrifice your own family. This madness culminated in Francis Coppola as the godfather. As Al Pacino discovered when he came back from World War II, the son had to follow his father's criminal path. When you were a Corleone, there was no leaving the outfit. It was an evil family, bound by fear and torn by treachery. But you served it without ever questioning its legitimacy, as though it was your country. The organization was a state within the state. The gangster a chairman of the board. And crime was a way of life. Perhaps more than any other film Scorsese has ever made, the Irishman shows the corrosive impact organized crime has had on American life. To be fair, Scorsese has rarely, if ever, delivered a happy ending. At best, his finales have been ambiguous, and that is one way he has smuggled in his numerous subtexts. Which means the Mafia has never really been his subject. Mean Streets focused on the rituals of small-time hoods in Little Italy. Goodfellas looked at crime in middle-class suburbia. Casino chronicled a multi-million dollar corporate enterprise in Las Vegas and the Wolf of Wall Street examined a CEO who violated international finance laws. The Irishman, it shows us how criminality became so deeply enmeshed in America's politics that it helped select its leaders. In exchange for that, the new president was supposedly gonna get Castro out of Cuba so our guys could get their casinos back and racetracks and shrimp boats and everything else that they had and owned down there from Havana back, but that, that didn't happen. To see the continuation of that theme, look no further than Scorsese's cast, and you will see that The Irishman is almost in dialogue with his earlier films. De Niro, Harvey Keitel and Joe Pesci. Not just in dialogue, it perhaps argues against some of them as well. Consider how collected Joe Pesci's Russell Buffalino is compared to any of the characters he has played before. Hey, you fat Irish prick, you put my fucking money to sleep. You go get my money or I'll put your fucking brain to sleep. Sam. Never mind, fucking Sam, this is personal. I'll be there in the morning, you can fucking try me, fatso. You fucking try me. But it's not just the lead characters that echo Scorsese's previous pictures. Look at the supporting roles, specifically the women. Here, Stephanie Kurtzba plays Frank's wife, Irene. But in The Wolf of Wall Street, she played Kimmy Belzer, the only female broker in Stratton Oakland. And then there is Welker White, who here plays Josephine Hoffa, but earlier in Goodfellas, played Lois Bird. I gotta go home and get my hat. Forget your fucking hat. What, are you kidding me? Just what I need now is a trip to Rockaway because you want to get your hat? I need it. I gotta have it. It's my lucky hat. I never fly without it. Beyond casting and the use of narration, there are yet more ways the Irishman develops the techniques, and therefore the themes, Scorsese has explored in his earlier films. Compare the extended take with which the film opens to similar extended takes that move us around the pool tables in Mean Streets, from the changing room all the way up to the boxing ring in Raging Bull, into the Copacabana in Goodfellas, out from the counting rooms of the Tangiers in Casino, across the docks in Gangs of New York, and about the trading floors in The Wolf of Wall Street. One of the reasons Scorsese orchestrated those iconic moments is because he was articulating the thrill experienced by the characters. The Irishman has no such thrill, precisely because Scorsese doesn't want it. This is not a story of exhilaration, it is a story of reflection, regret. The nearest Scorsese comes to such choreography is when Albert Anastasia, played by Gary Pastore, is murdered in the barbershop. It begins in a button man identifying Anastasia. He leaves, walks along the concourse where he passes two men who have just come up the stairs, gives them a quick confirmational nod before the camera switches direction to follow the two men 
as they head off to the barbershop. But instead of going all the way with them to witness the murder, Scorsese's camera goes beyond the shop to the floors next door. Colourful as the bouquets may be, we are now looking at a funeral. Finally, compare his use of freeze frame throughout Raging Bull, The King of Comedy, The Colour of Money, Goodfellas, Casino and The Wolf of Wall Street. They all froze the image at magnetic moments, but in The Irishman, Scorsese and editor Thelma Schoonmaker restrict the technique to the introduction of some characters, at which point they add a caption detailing how these men eventually meet their deaths, almost always through violence. The Irishman doesn't end with a freeze frame, but it certainly feels like it, closing on an image of a man who all too late realises and regrets he has, through savagery, avarice and psychosis, walked and talked and killed himself into a dark, silent, lonely and irredeemable corner.